Welcome to Cutting Edge Web Content Development, the podcast where we delve into the world of CMS systems and their crucial role in website and web content development. In each episode, we'll explore the reasons why founders, CEOs, CTOs, and CMOs of web content development companies need CMS systems to thrive in the digital landscape. Get ready to uncover the secrets behind successful website management, content creation, and seamless user experiences. Here's your host, Jonathan Ames. Welcome to the Cutting Edge Web Content Development Podcast by Butter CMS. Today, we've got Mark Probert, the Chief Strategy Officer at Nuicon, here talking with us. Mark, welcome. Hi, nice to meet you, Jonathan. Nice to meet you too. Just wanted to ask you first, give us a little view into your career journey and how it's shaped your views on content and technology. Yeah, I mean, I came from a traditional design background, left school at 16 and fell into a typical graphic design agency. Obviously, as we all know, the world's evolved a bit since the days of print. And back then I was doing packaging, exhibitions, branding, traditional media. And then obviously over the years, moved more into the digital realm. Had a small design agency in my early career. Um, of course, I didn't have the skills to do development. I tried some courses and explored HTML and CSS and web development back in the day, probably going back 20 years now. It wasn't for me. So I ended up partnering with freelance web developers. And um, yeah, that's really where it all started. Most of my design agency was becoming digital. I was outsourcing half my turnover to other people and making less and less profit. And then um, gradually um, made connections with my now business partners who were technical, they needed design skills and I needed development skills. So that was kind of the beginning of the journey, really. One of the things that interested me in your description of your agency was that you worked on Internet of Things, which is, you know, IoT. A lot of people are still not familiar with that. It's been around for a few years. Tell me what kind of projects you work on. Yeah, I I wish I'd discovered product development and IoT earlier in my career because it's just so exciting. We were part of the product partnership, and that's a collective of four companies. One is Realize, who are a product design company here in Bristol. Cubic, who are an electronics company, and Amalgam, who are a model-making company and work with some big companies as well. And then we came into the fold a bit later, I suppose, because they were working together on more traditional products. And then, of course, with the Internet of Things, a lot of products are now, like your iPhone, it's connected to your watch, it's connected to a database or home thermostat. So, yeah, we've been working on a real magnitude over the last sort of five or six years. We've done everything from connected thermostats in your home that have been used in social housing to monitor heat and energy usage and educate people in social housing on how to use it better. We've done medical products, working on some really exciting med tech at the moment, marine products, revolutionizing how um, marine products on boats with VHF radios are now able to be connected to watch device for like man overboard or a mobile phone rather than the walkie-talkie radio that traditionally they would have had and everything in between really even connected coffee machines you name it wow so what might a the content for a connected coffee machine provide yeah it's funny you say that even my own coffee machine with nespresso um i only purchased that i got it for christmas last year and it worked fine for nine months and then it started playing up and the app experience was underwhelming in many ways that it couldn't turn it on for me. I couldn't set it to come on in the morning. You still have to put the capsules in. So it didn't work like that. So I was like, why have they given me an app? 
And then it had some maintenance modes on there and it didn't really give much value. And I know my business partner's got a connected fridge and he says, you know, it's the same. It really just doesn't, unless it's telling you when it's out of milk and orders it for you, it's a bit gimmicky. It's not really worth it. However, one thing I did like with a connected product with my Nespresso, when it went wrong, I went to the app, I found the telephone number, I got straight through. And their customer service was seriously impressive, actually. I was pleasantly surprised that they said, right, I'm going to send you a text message with a link. You click the link, it would launch, it'd say, I want to take over your camera. And it would turn the camera into their eyes. So when I was showing it the red light and the things that were going wrong, and they would take me through the diagnosis, they were able to do that remotely very, very quickly without me installing any software via the app. So that was pretty impressive. That was a good use of IoT. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is really impressive. I think sometimes we overthink Internet of Things. And that's what most people, I think, would love to have with most of their appliances is when something isn't working exactly the way you hope, or maybe you don't know how to do something that you do infrequently with that device, just having access to easy tech support and just like you said, being able to have them look through your phone, hey, here's what's going on. This is the weird light that's coming on. What does this mean? Sometimes it's hard to describe that in a text format and look through a knowledge base and, and find that. So that's actually a really good use of Internet of Things for a, for a coffee maker. So very impressed with that. Just taking that a step further quickly, the, um, in the real world, obviously that's great in consumer, but we're doing that type of thing in terms of maintenance for like aircraft for Airbus. So instead of it being reactive maintenance, it becomes more proactive maintenance. And these days, even on an apron check on an aircraft, on an Airbus A320, it's still landing and people are getting up on ladders and checking things and putting manual dials to check tire pressures and the shock absorber, various checks. And obviously that's getting more digitized, but there's still quite a long way to go in those industries. You know, obviously they take a long time to come to fruition because of legislation and safety checks and things. But nonetheless, you know, we're, I can't say too much about these projects. We under NDAs and things, but, you know, imagine your tire pressure connected to um, a Bluetooth device and then it gives all the tire pressure and then they can check that across all the tires and have reporting to look at the um, analysis over time of those aircraft. So that's the sort of way it's going. Also AR now, be able to hold up, say, an iPad or an iPhone to um, an aircraft, like a head-up display of saying, oh, there's the undercarriage, and it giving some information overlaid over the image in a kind of AI, AR, augmented reality world. So that kind of maintenance is getting more and more prevalent now on anything from military through to quad bikes, through to aircraft, and even your copy machine like we were just talking about. So that's quite an exciting use of IoT. And I won't even get touched on digital twins and things like that, because that's even more exciting if you ask me now. But that's another realm. That is amazing that that, that is possible. And it's certainly very useful as both an efficiency tool, as well as prompting us, you know, things that need to get done that maybe, like you said, aren't reactive, but are proactive. And machines are very good at, you know, keeping schedules and helping us proactively do things. Well, tell me, switching now to more of a strategic insight, where do you find the strategic ideas from what's possible in this evolving technology out there? I mean, you said you're not a developer yourself. How do you find that synergy with those who are keeping tabs on all these new technologies and, and mesh that with your strategy? Yeah, that's the exciting bit for me because you don't really start with technology. You start with people and users 
So we're very design-led. I obviously came from a design background and have adapted my knowledge of design into, I guess, when you're doing branding back in my early days, it was still persona-led. What's the typical person that's going to appeal to this brand? And what's their mindset when they're using this product? And it's no different for digital, really. You're applying a lot of that. Okay, there's a bit more of environment. Am I out in a field or am I in my home? Have I got a screaming baby in the background? There's sort of that scenario role play that we do. But most of our innovation work, whether a client comes to us with a loose brief or whether they just want to say, let's run a workshop and let's explore ideas. We use traditional design thinking methodologies, but we've kind of a evolve Google design sprints and IDEO sort of mindsets to what works for us and our clients. They've got great things that have come out of Google and IDEO and Stanford University and things over the years. And we double diamond, you may have heard of, and there's a lot to be said for those methodologies, but they don't work for maybe a small startup with small budgets or someone who's not done product before. So we've kind of shaped how we do workshop and innovation and design thinking into what works for us and our customers. But basically, it boils down to workshops, putting the user at the pers- um, and personas at the heart of it, and then quickly moving into stories of how they're using that product and into how that innovation would work in the real world. And then we bring it to life with user experience design, which effectively ends up as clickable prototypes that without databases and code behind it, we can very, very quickly in a number of weeks, sometimes even days, put something tangible in front of a user or a stakeholder or an investor. And then they can see whether the market wants what they're potentially going to build, whether that be a new product or whether that be a back office system that's for their internal customers. It all starts with, right, we've got a vague idea. Let's get something down on paper and bring it to life as quickly as possible. And that's really our process. The technology is rarely a barrier. There's not much budget sometimes a barrier. But technology is rarely a barrier. We're doing some R&D work um, when we do touch on AI and um, AR and things. And even then, most things that we're touching at this day and age are feasible. It's just it might take a bit more time to get there. Yeah, it's not really putting technology first. It's putting designer users first is the important thing that we think. What are the common challenges then that arise with trying to take this user-centric approach and apply it. You mentioned budget was one. Yeah, I mean, the actual innovation process um, doesn't come with too many challenges um, because we can bring something to life. But obviously, to do proper user testing, you need to build it. You know, it needs a database behind it. It needs to be a fully functioning product, especially if it's got, I don't know, like we're doing a project at the moment that's got GPS and map coordinates and directions and things built into it. So they're the things that the prototype, you know, as good as it, is doing clickable prototypes and you can get a long way very quickly yeah, without real data and interactions. That's when it becomes slightly more expensive. And that's where be able to have low-code platforms or composable architecture, which is like design systems. That's when it really enables you to build things at pace without reinventing the wheel all the time. And the world's getting, you know, we've all seen websites become more commoditized now. You can now go on Wix and Squarespace and various tools and build a website out pretty quick. And in my early career, that was what I got paid reasonable money to build in a website. Now it's become commoditized and people can even do it at home in their back bedroom, which is great in a way because it it raises the bar. It enables you to do more innovation. The same's going to happen for 
more sophisticated products, you know, soon you'll be able to do back office systems and more complex databases and mobile apps. And you already can to a point, but they're still quite limited. They're restrictive, whether that be in creativity, visuals, animation, or it's just a glorified website compiled down to an app. So it's not really doing an awful lot. But nonetheless, you know, the bar's getting higher. And that's what we look to do because we're a technology agency. We're looking to sort of cannibalize our own thinking. And if we can do ourselves out of a job to a point, we will, because that's in, you know, innovation's best interest. And also it means that we can add more value to the really next level things like AI and AR and things rather than, oh, hold on, we've designed the front end interface or we've designed the database 30, 40 times over in our careers, but yet we're doing it over and over again. So naturally we solve that problem, but it's time consuming and that's not a good use of the client's budget and money. So the more we can make things reusable, better. And that's where um, composable architecture and design system means that you kind of slow down to speed up. You create components that you might spend more time designing and developing initially, but later when you do a new section, you can reuse a lot of those components and they need less testing. They're more robust. That's certainly an area that we're quite focused on. And I think that's the difference between maybe going to a, a freelancer who can code, but they haven't invested over a long time in that underlying sort of infrastructure and foundation that we have. And that's our value add proposition, I suppose, that we've got a lot of technology components that we give our IP to the clients. You know, it still remains their IP for their product, but we've got like an underlying framework that they benefit from that we've spent tens of thousands of hours developing some of these things over the years to speed up the project so our clients can achieve more and go further faster. Well, let me ask you, Mark, can you give a quick just definition? You mentioned composable in here. Not everyone may have the same definition of what that is or know what you know microservices are. Could you give just a quick definition of composable and microservices? Yeah, I suppose there's two sides to this. There's one that front-end development where you might go into a program like Figma or Sketch or Adobe XD, and you create components that are used at different responsive breakpoints. It might work well on a desktop, and it might work equally as well on a mobile and everything in between. Those programs like Figma are definitely getting more advanced now. They've got new features coming out that means that the developer has to do less coding because the design tool is working a lot more of it out. It's not fully there yet. But thinking like design systems and moving into composable architecture just means that when your your users, um, your readers now were to um, Google composable architecture, but also look at things like atomic design systems. The idea of atomic design is that you look at nested components. So a button that says read more or check out an e-commerce store is one component. But then within that, you might have a button nested with an image and a title and a price of that pair of jeans on the Levi's store or something. And then you've got to think how all those grouped components work when they're nested amongst other components. So you might have three laid out in a grid in a row. And then it's just um, the more that you design and test those components and think about the different permutations that they can be used in, the more versatile they are, the more considered they are, and the more flexible they are, which is good when you come to do future apps and other modules of your system that you're not reinventing the wheel, and eventually it becomes a time saver. 
And you get consistency. You know, you want from a user experience point of view, you want some of those components to feel the same and act the same because coherent design means it's more easily understandable, which means better design and experiences. So that's kind of one side of where we're saving time and budget. The other side is microservices like you touched upon, where rather than building a monolith application that you've kind of got this bit talking to this bit and it's a bit spaghetti junction and maybe only the developer that developed it knows what the hell's going on under the hood. The modern trend now is to build out like pillars. This pillar here will be your database for your customers and users. This pillar here might be how it manages your product and inventory and so forth. And you build out stacks and those stacks might have complexity under them but they don't talk at every layer to the other stack. What happens is they talk at the, the head of the layer, which is called an API, and that's when you get kind of headless solutions is another term people might understand, where you're talking from the head to another head, but you're not talking down to the toe and the arm and the foot is kind of my layman's way of explaining it. And by doing that, you don't run into issues that you have spaghetti code going on and nobody really knows that there's dependencies. And then a bit like Jenga, you pull at the string and it all collapses. That's what you don't want from a system. But historically, that's what happens with a lot of software products. And we don't always move microservices straight away. They take a little bit more time and consideration to architect. So if you were just trying to do a really basic proof of concept MVP, you might not go to those lengths. You might accept that the code's a bit messy and it's not completely scalable, but you can get something out the door really, really quickly. But of course, if you're going to become Netflix or Uber and you've got grand aspirations, you have to think that way because it's just not going to be scalable otherwise. And I guess that's what going to a software agency is about, knowing the right times to use the right tools. When's it a false economy? And when's it going to speed up development in the longer term? And often it depends where people are in their life cycle, in their journey of their product. And that's what you know we advise on. We work out where they are. We talk to them about those pros and cons. We can do it this way, but it's got this downside. And that's what a good technology creative consultancy should be able to do. And that's what we do for our clients. Switching over to a tactical view, that's a great definition, by the way, of composable and microservices. Tactically, if someone is wanting to move in this direction, let's say they've been working in kind of either a monolithic environment or maybe in creating content more as a one-off rather than as these components that can be reused, what would be the best practices to switching over to a composable architecture? If you had a client coming in and saying, hey, now we want to move over to this, what would you advise them to start with? Yeah, I guess it's just looking at what you're trying to achieve. You know, it's working backwards from your end destiny definition of where you want to be. You've got microservices and you want people to connect to the API outside of your organization or your product, then you need to consider that up front and have a bit of a product roadmap so you can define that. And then you've got to think about security sometimes too. If you're opening up your system and APIs to other people, obviously you're introducing potential vulnerabilities. So just to consider do you need to open up all areas of your system? Or do you just need to open up that one part of the microservice? Or maybe you need to really restrict it to just, you've got the two-way in an API pushing data and pulling data. A lot of the time people open up full APIs where really all they need to do is grab some data and pull it down to present it on a front end. 
but yet they open up their whole system to do it. So they're the kind of device, the ways people sometimes over-engineer things when sometimes the simple solution will do. And sometimes that can stop later ramifications and simplifying your solution. But yeah, starting big and working backwards to what you actually need is often a, a good way to go. And if someone is starting to look at the tools necessary to begin building a composable site or building content in a composable way, what would be the criteria that they would use to make those selections? I mean, obviously looking at what's available off the shelf, there's a lot of good headless CMSs out there and headless can be applied to all sorts. It doesn't even have to be a CMS these days is sort of as something you log into on the back end to update the content of your website. But obviously, CMS can be used for many things these days. And the limitations of a CMS in the old days used to be, well, I have a bit of content, I can edit it and maybe upload an image or something. These days, it can be far greater than that. And you've got bigger, greater power to take control of multiple touch points. You might want to take that bit of content and display it in an airport on a big screen. You might want to um, put it on a mobile app. It might be on my kettle. You know, it could be anything. Looking at what's available and thinking again where your roadmap wants to go, is there a solution out there that fits? If so, that might be a way to go to speed up development. It doesn't restrict you on the front end because you can do whatever you want with modern JavaScript and CSS and HTML5 on the front end. So as long as you've picked a solution on the back end that's scalable and doesn't restrict you on the front end, then you're the world's your oyster in terms of what you can create. Obviously, picking the right tool is imperative, but sometimes you don't know what the right tool is because you go on a bit of a journey, and that's often the nature of innovation and software projects. So it's not easy, but again, that comes back to the very beginning of our conversation about we do clickable prototypes and architecture and things where you kind of blue sky the solution and you might not have any dream in the next five, 10 years of developing some of those things, but at least you've dreamt the future and some of those gotchas you can think when you're choosing your platform or technology stack, you can think, oh yeah, we discussed that one day we might want to do that. Do we care about that right now? Are we willing to take that risk or do we want to think this through a little bit more and think, Maybe we should do something a bit more bespoke at a framework level because we don't want to be restricted by someone else's platform. And sometimes open source platforms are great, but you are sometimes within the realms of their roadmap. And that roadmap might not meet with your product aspirations. So it's checking that you're aligned with the roadmap of that underlying tool or headless CMS or whatever that you pick. Not always easy to do, but do your research. Same. Good advice. Good advice, Mark. Well, let me ask you on a personal standpoint, if you could go back in time to your younger self when you're starting out as a graphic designer, what piece of advice would you like to give your younger self? Yeah, I'd say not to restrict your limitations. You know, I left school and got into graphic design thinking, well, that was going to be my career. I've ended up in technology and business development and design thinking. You know, I I know a fair bit about technology without being a coder because I've been around it for a decade now. So I think back then, my advice would have been, I'm limited to that job role that I trained at college a bit for and did a couple of years apprenticeship for. So just be open-minded, I think, would have been my advice to myself that just because you start here, the world evolves 
And what was needed from a print designer isn't really needed now. And I, I kind of realized this when, even when I was at 18, 20 years old, I said to my boss, this will be automated one day. I'm laying out, I don't know, like a catalog, like a giant jigsaw puzzle. It's not particularly, I mean, I did do more creative work, but there were times where I was doing what they called artwork, desktop publishing. And really, it was a giant jigsaw puzzle. It was a giant jigsaw puzzle of laying out lots of components on a page. And now we're not far away from being able to chuck the data at it and say to an AI, make the most sensible decisions on this for me and lay it out, or at least get it to a point that it's kind of 80% there and I might refine it from there on in. Yeah, I think um, just realizing that nothing stays constant in life. I'm glad that I went on the journey I went on because if I hadn't gone on this journey, I probably would have been obsolete soon. No, very good advice. I followed a very similar... I'll keep learning. A very similar uh, career path to your own. I started out in graphic design. I was laughing as you were telling each of those stories because I remember that. I started in the 90s with that. But yeah, so good, good advice. And sometimes it's helpful. I wish I would have gotten more advice like what you just said at the beginning of my career. And so that's why I always include this because I feel that people like yourself who've been in the industry for a decade or two have picked up some things that if you were just starting out really could be helpful. But speaking of things that could be helpful, have you found, has there been any, you know, book, maybe podcast or tool that you've really felt has helped you in your career that you could maybe pass on to someone else and say, hey, check this out? Yeah, I suppose there's two sides to this. There's the kind of vocation part of my career in the early days as a designer. And now I'm not using my design skills in the traditional sense, but I'm using them more abstractly in terms of problem solving now. So in terms of design, I mean, obviously I learned tools like Adobe back in the day, and um, now that's moved into things like Figma because we're doing more UX. So design thinking, I got more into in my later career and understanding that. So things like AJ and Smart and IDEO were inspirations for us. AJ and Smart is American. They've done very well in terms of training academies. We tried to launch an academy, but didn't get very far with it. So hats off to those guys. They've done well on that front. I like their content a lot and how they market it and how they um, encourage people to sign up is quite a modern approach to marketing. So got a lot of respect for what they've done in that front. In terms of business books and things like that, yeah, Stephen Bartlett in the UK, who's on Dragon's Den here, um, he's got a podcast called um, Diary of a CEO. You know, even if you're not into technology that much, there's a lot of good life tips and all sorts in there. So I'm quite a big fan of that. There's a sporting one um, by a BBC presenter here um, called Jake. I'm going to forget his surname now. And again, that's that kind of sports performance taken into the business world. So books like that have been really good. My business partner would probably be better for this question because <laughs> he's just an absolute bookworm. He consumes content like it's going out of fashion. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm tired at the end of the day. I need to go and watch a bit of Netflix. So <laughs> I read a bit, not loads compared to what he does. So yeah, we should get him on the podcast. He talked for hours about inspirational books. That's, that's excellent. Actually, that was really helpful. It's good advice. It's not so much the quantity is, I hope every time I listen to a podcast that that bit of information that they share turns me on to some other bit of information that I can continue in a chain of learning. And so a lot of times the podcast that I enjoy the most will bring up some methodology, you know, I'll go find it in a book and 
and learn further on that. So that's quite why I asked that. I was actually perfect. Let me give you some time now to talk a little bit about your agency, who you're best fit with, and what kind of work you do that's, that's really kind of your special sauce, what, what you feel like uh, you bring best to the table. Yeah, we've always been a mixed bag, really, because obviously I came from that design background and my business partner came from like hardcore software background at Airbus. And we've kind of met in the middle at the end. Of, well, not the end, because we are where we are now. I'm not quite free enough and ready to retire just yet. So still on that journey. So in the early days, we might have been doing more web and e-commerce, and that would have been more of our sweet spot in the early days. And then we might have had some really big back office systems and database problems. And now we're probably somewhere in the middle that because of the, you know, the success of Apple and the iPhone and the iPad, et cetera, and other devices like that, the expectations for everything to be really beautiful to use and intuitive, the bar is raised. So even when we're doing back office systems, people expect them to not look like Windows 98 and some ugly Oracle respect to Oracle and stuff, databases back in the day, but you know what I mean? Looking like a spreadsheet on a browser is no longer acceptable. That's been interesting that everything we do, whether it be a product or whether it be a back office system, is certainly got that user experience design and aesthetics certainly baked into a higher level. So that opens the playing field for us to be able to tackle more projects and add more value along that sort of stream. In terms of where we sort of specialize, we realized that we were stuck at one point until recently, to be honest, between that web world and that bigger sort of software world. So we span out a separate agency called Flex Digital, and they're more in that basic websites, WordPress, Webflow, maybe a bit of e-commerce, but light touch, and more of a digital marketing agency. So they're a smaller team that's still under our umbrella, but they're a spin-off company. It's actually run by my um, business partner, Steve. His brother, Richard, runs it, and that was his passion. He, He was originally employed to help with a bit of admin and do a bit of digital marketing to find us more work. And it became a business because he got good at it and enjoyed it. So hats off to him for that. He kind of formed a little business. But it complements what we do in some ways because on the new icon side, on the bigger products we do, course, if it is a product, especially a consumer product, even B2B, it needs marketing, it needs a go-to-market strategy, it needs to test assumptions. Sometimes we even do smoke and mirrors where we'll prototype it. We haven't even built it. We put a few like beautiful screens up, create a micro site of the value proposition, and you get some digital marketing running it from, I don't know, TikTok or YouTube, and you see whether the world signs up to the coming soon newsletter and that can be a really cheap way of bootstrapping. Does the market want what we're about to build? And that's becoming more and more popular. We work with some agencies like Light Story, who is actually owned by Stephen Bartlett. And they're very big on that, of that test the market with a bit of smoke and mirrors to see whether there's any traction. It's a very cheap way of testing the market. So that experience that we've got in that digital marketing realm helps us advise clients better. It's probably not where our main revenue streams come from, but it means that we have got a really good end-to-end offering and a lot of sometimes free advice. I sometimes spend an hour on a call with people, give them a lot of free advice. But hey, that, that looks good for us as a company. And hopefully they remember that. And when they do have bigger investments, they come back to us or refer us to other people. So um, that value add 
is something that I've learned over the years. And I think it's really nice to be able to give to people on that product journey, building that partner relationship. But yeah, what, what really we love, we do love the startups and we love those um, IoT products and those Uber type products and Facebook type products and everything like that. Yeah, that's exciting. But they don't always pay the bills so well because we get them in their journey when they have the least amount of money um, and they're quite demanding in a good way. I enjoy it, but you know, you give a lot of energy to them, and maybe not huge financial returns. Whereas the slightly larger companies, you know, you go up to the really big companies and I won't name the names, but it gets a bit bureaucratic sometimes. So that can be slower paced and they want to do innovation, but you get the bureaucracy wrapped in, which slows it up. They want to think like startups, but they still struggle because of it's a big, big ship and a lot of stakeholders, which I get. So the, the companies in the middle, I like larger SMEs. They might have anything between 20 and 100 employees. They might have some of these skill sets that we have internally. So they recognize the challenges and they've kind of been on that journey. But they've got so many projects going on because they're growing quickly. We've got one in the energy sector at the moment. They're involved in EV charging and things, and they're growing really fast. And they've got 300 odd people, and they still need our help as an agency because they've just got too much going on. But they kind of get our world, so you don't have to educate them so much. And you're more aligned, and they're more empathetic to agile, and you know maybe not be able to give them a fixed price when you first meet them because you have to go on this journey. And they recognize that they need a partner with that kind of relationship that they can trust and go on those journeys with. I love all of it. And they've all got their pros and cons in terms of types of projects we like to work on. But some pay the bills more, some more exciting. So We can end with just share a story of one of your clients. And you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but where you really felt like you hit it out of the park and, uh, and did a great job for them. And yeah, share that with uh, our listeners here. Yeah, I'd love to tell you about the Marine Project. But we, they haven't launched that yet. The, the launch is 2024. So I can't talk about that because that was quite game changing. And we're working on a med tech product at the moment that is pretty revolutionary. I'd say the one that's probably less exciting, but gave me a nice warm, fuzzy feeling recently because um, I heard it from a few people was we built a financial services portal. It helped. It was kind of a underlying platform for financial advisors to give pension portals and pension advice using a, a bigger platform to do that. So it was kind of like a independent pension advisory service in a box that they could sign up to and then all of manage all their clients sort of um, investments and assets through it. And it wasn't the most challenging project that we'd done, but I knew we'd done a good job on it when the customers of that product started knocking on our door saying, oh, they're taking the product in a different direction. We want our own version of it. And they said, well, the product's got a really good reputation in the market and we've hunted you down. They've been on Google and tried to find it on the case studies. And luckily, our new CMO had written a case study only sort of six months ago on this because for a year or two, we hadn't got around to writing it. And we timed it quite well that the market wanted to find who'd built this product. And they did. Um, a few of them started knocking on our door. And that was just quite nice recognition that sometimes we don't hear the customer, might, the client that we built it for might hear off all their customers. You did a great job. But us as the agency, we're kind of behind those doors and we won't get that exposure. So 
that was quite nice that we've been hunted down that we've done a nice job. So that was quite nice recognition. So I'll leave it at that. No, that's uh, one of the most powerful ways to feel the project has moved forward outside of just like, hey, we reached this goal or we got this monetary gain out of it is to get that feedback from the actual users that this made a difference, that we liked this experience. So that's, that's great feedback to hear. Mark, thank you so much for sharing your stories, your insights, your strategies. Just do you want to drop in, just let people know your website, maybe how to connect with you if they wanted to reach out? Yeah, obviously I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. So anyone can connect with me on LinkedIn using Mark Probert as a search. Um, the company's obviously New Icon. Not to be confused with New Icon because um, it yeah, reads wrong, but we are newicon.net. And yeah, we've got a new brand and we're sort of relaunching the um, our offering a bit soon. So watch this space for a new brand and a new sort of marketing website coming out soon. But yeah, if anyone's got anything they want to discuss about any of these topics, then hook me up. Always open for a coffee online or, or meeting in the pub for a beer or whatever. Excellent. Thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate your time and your insights today. Not at all. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks, Jonathan. And um, take care. Cutting Edge Web Content Development is brought to you by Butter CMS. To find out how you can build better with Butter, stop wasting dev time, and free your marketers from your legacy CMS, visit buttercms.com. Also, make sure to search for Cutting Edge Web Content Development in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Butter CMS, thank you for listening.